churches all over the world, and they've had, like, in just the last couple of years, four pastors have to step down because of affairs. Um, and, I mean, we're talking churches, each of them with thousands of people in their churches. Um, you know, including the, the Australian-based church's founder, actually, just came out that he was also involved in some sort of sexual misconduct. <laughs> uh, the fastest-growing group of churches in Canada... Uh, just lost their leader after it came out that he's had over the last several years three different affairs. And of course, you can forget the disgrace of Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr. You know, if you're, he and his, uh, it all came out a couple years ago about he and his wife's various peccadilloes involving the pool boy. We won't talk about it. You can read about it if you really want to. I would suggest you just ignore it. <laughs> It's almost, sometimes the truth is too weird to even, stranger, stranger than fiction. I always think that's interesting because, of course, you'll remember that his father was the founder of the Moral Majority. How many of you remember the Moral Majority? That was the first of the great evangelical sort of political action groups. But apparently his morals did not pass on to his son. Now, I'm not trying to pile on particularly here, because I realize people sin, and we all have our sins. But I do want to remind us really quick of what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is a good verse for anybody to, to memorize and think about, but especially pastors. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret thing of God, things of God. So Paul's talking about him and the rest of his group. They're, you know. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust, right, entrusted with the things of God, must prove faithful. Servants of Jesus must prove faithful. Yet we just have this modern scourge of men who claim to be servants of Christ, but they can't even be faithful to their wives, let alone anything else. They are neither, in the parlance of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, they are neither humble 
total obedience. Now remember the last couple weeks, we have talked about Jesus as our model of both humility and obedience. He models humility in putting the needs and interests of others ahead of his own. God takes on flesh and is willing to be humiliated for our salvation. And then he shows perfect obedience, we talked about last week, to the greater plan of the Father as he goes to the cross, he suffers and he dies that we might be saved. The one who has existed in, in perfect unity and power and sovereignty with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity past becomes a servant, Paul tells us, to those he created so that he can become their redeemer. And thus, Jesus calls us to lives of humility and obedience. He models for the, this for us in his time on earth, and he gives us his spirit living in us to help us to grow into more Christ-likeness. Because remember, God's goal is for every one of us to become more like Jesus. And you know what? All that sounds really great this sermon. But you know what? As my wife will testify, I'm not Jesus. She'll even testify, I'm not Paul. <laughs> and we look around, and we look at so many of these leaders, even, and there are so few examples of people who really live like Jesus in humility and obedience. Certainly, you would think the pastor of a large, popular megachurch would really be striving to be like Jesus. But we're actually finding out that it's pretty much the opposite of that. Examples of what Paul has taught us in the last couple sermons seem very hard to find. So today we come to the end of chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, as I stated, if you read my email on Friday, I I've read Philippians many, many times. I'm sure many of you have read Philippians many, many times. Some of you maybe more than I have. I'm sure I've read Philippians just between my yearly Bible reading and other times. 30, 35, 40 times. No lie. And every time I get to chapter 2, and I'm, I'm struck by the glory of Christ, of his great work on our behalf, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. You know that song? chapter 2, just before we get to where we are today, you know, verses 17 18, Paul talks about being poured out. He's talking about death there. He's talking about dying in the service of Christ. And so, so we, we obey and we follow Jesus' example, even to death. And then we get to verse 19. And it's a huge letdown. Because we've just talked about Jesus and how glorious he is and how we're to follow his example, even unto death. And then we get, oh, by the way, I need to send you back to him so he can come see you. He kind of misses you guys. He wants to report back. Oh, yeah, and you get to verse 25. And Epaphroditus, that guy's pretty cool. Uh, he's worried about y'all. 
Did I mention he almost bought the farm a few days ago? So I thought I'd send him back. So we go from the glory of Christ and all this to, oh yeah, here's Tim, Epaphroditus. Cool guys. What? Why in the world does Paul go from the humility and the obedience and the glorification of our Lord and how we're expected to grow into that to talking about his buddy? And now, preaching through Philippians, I am forced to come up with an answer to that question. And you can now benefit from my having to sit there and think about this for long hours. Because since I believe that when Paul wrote Philippians, he was operating under the influence of God's Spirit, it cannot be an accident that he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Must be there for a reason. And I believe Paul writes about Timothy and Epaphroditus to solve the problem that I brought up at the beginning of this message. Timothy and Epaphroditus are real-world examples of people who live out what Paul has just been talking about. What Paul has just written about. Paul sets the bar high. And then he gives us Timothy and Epaphroditus as if to say, I know that humility and obedience are tough, but here are two guys that you know, because these were both known to the Philippians, regular Joes, who are just normal guys, who are faithfully living out humility and obedience. It can be done. Because here are two guys that did it. Let's start with Timothy, the humble servant. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself may come also. Now, we know a lot about Timothy from the New Testament. We know he was a native of Lystra in the province of Galatia, which is, you know, part of what we call Turkey now. He, his mother Eunice, was Jewish. His father was Greek. Both his mother and his grandmother, his grandmother's name was Lois, so you can tell how important they are because we know their name. Notice we don't know, we don't know Timothy's father's name. But we know Eunice and Lois. They were both believers, according to 2 Timothy 1.5. They had instructed Timothy in the Old Testament, 2 Timothy 3.15. Very possible Paul led him to Christ because he talks about uh, him as his faithful child in the faith. Probably during the first missionary journey when he was in Lystra. Uh, that's in Acts 14, verses 6 through 23. We know he was not circumcised as a child. So even though his mother and grandmother were Jewish, he had a Greek father, and probably his father also made sure he was well-educated in the, the Greek culture and the, and the Roman culture. So he had this combined Jewish and Greek heritage, made him very qualified then to minister the gospel with Paul. Because he could go to the Jews as a Jew, and he could go to the Romans as a Roman. 
made Timothy more acceptable to the Jews, especially those in Galatia, when they were traveling there. Acts 16 tells us that Paul had him circumcised. And by the time Paul wrote Philippians, Timothy had been almost his constant companion for 10 years, including apparently being there in Rome while Paul was in prison. Listen to some of the things Paul calls Timothy in the scriptures. Paul speaks of him as my true child in the faith, 1 Timothy 1-2. My beloved son, 2 Timothy 1-2. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 4-17. My fellow worker, 3-4 times. Our brother, a couple times. And in the present letter, fellow servant in Christ Jesus. Timothy was with Paul in Corinth in Acts 18. He was sent to Macedonia in chapter 19 of Acts. And he accompanied the apostle on his return trip to Jerusalem in chapter 20 of Acts. He's associated with Paul in the writing of Romans in Romans 16. Uh, he uh, appears in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, both Thessalonian epistles, and Philemon. This guy spent a lot of time with Paul. And he himself, of course, is the recipient of two letters from Paul when he's pastoring the church at Ephesus. We only have three letters that Paul wrote to individuals, and Timothy gets two of them. Timothy was faithful and dependable in every way, and clearly qualified to be a model for the Philippians to emulate. They were well acquainted with him, and now Paul holds him up as this model of humble servanthood. And notice the proof that Paul provides is twofold here. First, he tells the Philippians he just doesn't have anybody else who is concerned for other people the way Timothy is. Because everybody else is concerned about themselves, they're not concerned about the things of Jesus, they're not concerned about other people. But I have no one else who is concerned like Timothy. It's the same sort of language used earlier in the chapter when we see how we're to be like Jesus in being not only concerned for ourselves, but putting other people ahead of ourselves. Timothy apparently has a history of doing this. He put other people ahead of himself. He's also someone who serves with Paul, sort of like how a dedicated child serves with his father. Now remember that culturally, in both Rome and Israel, it was very common for a son to go on and learn the trade of his father, serving alongside his father, growing up sort of as an apprentice. So if, if you know, you lived in that culture a lot of times, and if, if my dad would have been a, a blacksmith, let's say, I would have grown up learning how to, to be a blacksmith, and then I would have been a blacksmith. That sort of thing. And eventually you'd go on and establish your own family, and you're in your own trade, and that sort of thing. What we see here, Timothy is, Pretty much doing exactly that. <coughs> Becoming a true servant of the gospel of Christ, just like his spiritual father Paul. He's a good citizen of the kingdom as he serves Paul and alongside Paul. So in Timothy, we're given this real-world example of somebody who lives out the humility of Jesus by putting other people's interests first, and who is willing to do whatever he needs to do in order to serve Christ. He spends years traveling around with Paul. And I mean, travel back then wasn't like travel now. I mean, if you think the airport's bad now, you should have traveled back then. It was rough and dangerous. He spent
spends years traveling, spends years serving Christ by serving Paul and Paul's mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Long, long before he ever gets to stay in one place and just serve a church. Long before he eventually becomes a pastor in the church in Ephesus. So Timothy is our model of how we can put other people ahead of ourselves and serve where we're at. See, some people want glory. They want to be the person that's large and in charge. Timothy is humble. And instead, he's willing to just spend a decade or more traveling with Paul, humbly serving alongside him for the cause of Jesus. Great example. Now, Paul's second model for us is a much lesser-known disciple named Epaphroditus. But he is the obedient worker. Verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you were he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now we know a great deal about Timothy. We know pretty much nothing about Epaphroditus. He's only mentioned in the book of Philippians, in the entire New Testament, in only a few verses. Now some scholars do think he may be the same person as Epaphras mentioned in Colossians. But we don't have any real evidence for certain, other than Philippi and Colossae are close, geographically. And Epaphras is sometimes short for Epaphroditus in Greek, the same way Bob is sometimes short for Robert. We don't really know. Even then, we still don't know that much about him, even if he'd be Epaphras in Colossae. We know he's from Philippi. We know that he's the one that brought the Philippians' financial support to Paul in Rome, where Paul was in prison, because we see that in verse 18 of chapter 4 of Philippians. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. We know from what Paul says here in chapter 2 that sometime after arriving in Rome, or maybe on the trip or whatever, Epaphroditus felt gravely ill, and somehow this news has made its way back to the Philippians. But God had mercy on him, and he was healed, and he survived. And so here we have Paul now, knowing Epaphroditus' concern for his church family in Philippi and their concern for him. He sends him back with this letter, even though he would have liked to have kept him longer. Now some scholars feel that the future tense Paul sometimes uses here is that he hasn't sent him yet. That somebody else took the letter to Philippi and he was going to send Epaphroditus. But I think it's more likely that Epaphroditus carried this letter and the future tense just indicates it hadn't happened yet when Paul was writing the letter. But it's happened now because he brought the letter. But what's important to know here, I think, about Epaphroditus is Paul calls him a worker and soldier. He was somebody in the fight. He had traveled from Philippi to Rome, carrying the gifts that the Philippians had sent to Paul, most likely at great risk to himself. 
imagine traveling back then carrying a bunch of money or whatever they were sending all the way to Rome. It's crazy. He almost dies during this service, in fact, because he gets sick. You know, traveling under Roman rule, I mean, may have been safer than traveling prior to the Romans, but it was still hazardous. Just think of how difficult Paul's journey to Rome was. He gets shipwrecked. They end up on an island eating fish on the beach, not in a good way. It's, it's horrible. And he's got a Roman centurion with him. Gets bit by a snake, right? It's part of that story, right? Dog snake comes out of fire, bites him. All the people are like, "Ooh, he must have been a murderer. He's gonna die." Then he does die, and they're all like, "Ooh, he must be a god because he just got bit by a snake and didn't die." I don't have any snakes anymore. <laughs> I can get some if you want. Teach yeah. you the secret snake handling. But I, want you to I just want you to imagine, just to give you a real world example of what it must have been like for poor Epaphroditus, not with snake handling. Imagine if we raised some money for Ukrainian pastors, because I mean, Ukraine's in a rough, rough shape right now, okay? And I said to one of you, listen, here's what I need you to do. I need you to get on a plane, and I need you to fly to Poland. And then, I need you to cross the border into Ukraine. I need you to travel to Kiev, and I need you to get this money to these Ukrainian pastors in Kiev. My guess is that would probably not be your preferred method of service for Jesus. You'd probably rather just teach children's church or something. Right? Hazardous. The people of Ukraine are going the other way into Poland. But I want you to go into Poland, or into But Epaphroditus, he obediently tracks to Rome, almost dies doing it. Then he makes his way back to Philippi to deliver this letter. While in Rome, he serves Paul in whatever capacity he's able, because obviously Paul thinks very highly of him, and he's really glad to have him and sad to see him go. And he obediently returns to Philippi. And what I get from Epaphroditus is that here is a guy who just obediently does what he some people just grumble about stuff. Some people don't want to get involved. They don't really want to work. They're happy to be on the sidelines. They're, they're, they're maybe willing to give a few bucks for the cause, but they, they don't want to get too plugged in. They don't want to really work too much. But see, the Lord is looking for workers. Look what he says in Luke chapter 10. He told them, this is Jesus, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. Lord's looking for workers. You see, a huge part of obeying all that the Lord has commanded us is getting involved in the work. And most of the work is not glorious or flashy. It's carrying the letter. It's maybe risking our own well-being. It's going to spend some time with some kids in prison be a lot of things. Most of them are not upfront, flashy sorts of stuff. And you notice we never hear about Epaphroditus again after this letter. He just does what needs to get done. 
And Paul gives them to us as an example of obedient service to Jesus. One of the jobs I had when I was in seminary, a long time ago, was I worked part-time for this missionary couple who traveled around counseling other missionaries to help them adapt to missionary life. They had been missionaries for like 25 years. And what they actually did, they were Lutherans. Um, and they helped Lutheran missionaries who were new to the field like adapt. So they would travel around and, and work with these missionaries. Or even they would travel um, into, the, into the field to missionary teams that were having trouble to try to help these teams work through their, their struggles. They're really neat people. I did not travel helping missionary teams. I mowed the lawn. I sorted the mail when they were gone. I paid their bills for them when they were gone. They were gone sometimes two, three weeks at a time. I fed and walked the dog while they were gone. Right? That's glorious service for Jesus. Walking the dog with a plastic bag in their hand. Right? Those are things that needed to be done. Somebody's got to do it. They weren't glorious. They weren't up front. They weren't even, they weren't even resume building. How do you put that on a resume? Good at walking the dog. It still needs to be done. See, I think one of the problems for some of the, the men I mentioned in the introduction sermon is they, they, they never had to be like Epaphroditus and carry the letters. They never mowed the lawn. They didn't have to do the behind the scenes stuff that brings no glory but builds character because it's obedient work that teaches us to serve and builds our character. It's obedient workers who can be trusted to carry the money to Paul in Rome. If you want to be more like Jesus, Paul gives us two great examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Two people who are completely regular folks. There's nothing, you know, super special about either one of these guys. We know them, but they're not a whole lot. But they lived out humility and obedience. They were, they were willing to do what needed to be done. Even in Epaphroditus' case, risking their own well-being do it. Actually, even Timothy, I mean, you think about the number of cities Paul gets run out of, or people throw rocks at him at, or they try to plot against him and kill him. Timothy probably felt like his life was on the line most of the time, too. But off he went. Long before he got to be the pastor of a successful church, Timothy spent more than a decade traveling around like that with Paul. Even staying by his side when Paul was on arrest in Rome. He didn't have to stay there. Paul can't leave. Paul's on house arrest. Roman guards, 24 hours a day. Timothy sticks by his side. Paphroditus, honestly, guy's not much more than a quick footnote in Paul's writing, right? But he's commended by Paul for his obedience and faithful work. And I think we would do well to model our lives and service on people like that. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you 
giving us examples of people like Timothy the pastor guys, people who, who were like us, just regular folks, but who were faithful, obedient, humble, willing to do what needed to be done for the work to go forward. Even if it wasn't glamorous, even if it wasn't the upfront stuff, even if it wasn't the stuff that you get long books of history written about you. 